Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. You should have an identity. You have a very clear identity. You can turn that identity into a paragraph description of what your identity is. And then those words are turned into numbers and the numbers are turned into visualization. And everybody in the club, you know, this is a dream. It doesn't always happen, but everybody should be building into that. The players should know what that is. The, um, the board should know what that is and the fans should know what that is. And you can, I think, put that together with analytics. I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru, and our guest on today's episode is Professor David Sumter. David is a pioneer of the use of data science in football. He's worked with teams including Ajax, Barcelona and England, and has a long-standing association with Hammerby. Last week, he hosted an XG Masterclass for us, which you'll be able to find on our website. So I hope you enjoy this episode. There are lots of really interesting insights from someone who's worked at the cutting edge in one of the key areas of modern football. And if you like what you hear, please give us a follow via your podcast app. That's the best way you can support us and also make sure that you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, David. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, we've been talking a few times this week because we did the expected goals things earlier, but it's uh, it's nice to nice to catch up and talk. And I was going to split this into three sections, actually, got past, present, future. When did you first find out you were gifted at mathematics? I, yeah, I, I'd say it was like computer programming more than mathematics. I found out that I was, I sort of, I was to say I had some talent in something. When I got my Dragon 32, at the age of, I don't know, it came out 82, I was like nine years old. I quite quickly got the hang of programming the computer. And so I was into math. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't that interested at school. I wasn't like one of these really committed students. I did pretty well. And maths was my strongest subject. But it wasn't until I got to university to study computer science that I realized that everything that lay behind algorithms is mathematics and that's really been a continuing thing and that's sort of what led, led me into football as well is that trying to find out the math mathematics behind things and mathematics is a language for describing things were you a football fan at the same time so I always feel a bit guilty about this with a football fan I mean I'm you know I'm a football fan right but I was I wasn't a great player uh like I often get comments from my friends at school about this and um but I, I got a little bit better when I got older because I always enjoyed playing. Um, but I'm not one of these crazy football fans like all of you are, you know. So I, I, it was something I was interested in, followed it as a as a fan, went to the matches. But I wasn't like a total football nut. And I suppose I'm not like a completely crazy football addict who knows all the players and all of that type of thing. I'm still really not that type of person now. I'm a kind of moderate level football fan. I turn it on a bit in soccermatics. I turn it on a bit and talk about the moments in in my life where football has meant a lot to me, and I think it means a lot to everybody. But I'm certainly not a total football maniac. When did you first realise that you could ally those two things—the computer programming and the football? Yeah, that was um, that was actually when I wrote the book. So when I wrote soccermatics. I had an idea of writing a book about collective behavior. So I studied fish schools, I studied human social interactions, all of those things. And I wanted to write a book which explained that. And I wrote to a publisher, an agent, an agent in London, and I'd written one example. So I must have been a bit of a football fan there because I wrote one example to do with football. And he was like, yeah, that's the key. You know, if you want to get people interested in mathematics, that's the example that's going to get a lot of people and catch their attention. And then I, and then I thought about it. Then I became extremely interested. You know, wait a minute. Football is about collective motion of players. It's about passing networks, which we can describe as graphs. It's about randomness. Putting all of those things together, it turned out there was really loads of examples of football. And so the, the, it came first with the idea of the book. And then, well, we're going to talk about this, then it just exploded from there, I think. 
So were there similarities then when you talk about movement and things like that? There were similarities yeah. with the fish then? Yeah, absolutely. And you you see that there's quite a lot of you see you always have a comment. I think Guardiola said it a few few years ago about seagulls that he'd been watching seagulls and now now he was ready to train Manchester City to play like seagulls. You the idea really is this, and this is what we always looked at with the bird and the fish behavior. Fish they move in tens of thousands of individuals but they only look at two or three individuals around them. And, and as, well, as long as they can control the positions and know the positions of those around them, then they can move in unison in a very effective way. And it's the same thing in football. You can't know where every 22 player is, but if you know the rough formation, you know where your position is on the pitch, then you can start to build up those relationships and understand the game. So football players and birds have a lot in common. And because they have a lot in common, that means it's the same type of mathematical models that allow you to understand the collective motion of the players as it is to understand the collective motion of the fish. Mm. I, was, I mean, I was thinking about the fish because I was I was less interested in fish than I was in football. But I spent like, you know, 10 years of my life studying the mathematics of fish. And I just really get into understanding these types of these types of problems. Mm. Because I have heard people say before that they think football is too random and such mm. a low-scoring game that it makes it hard to apply mathematics or modelling to it. Um, yeah, that's, that's obviously not true. <laughs> no, there's two parts of that answer. I mean, one is it is very random. Um, but so I always think about it like this, that there's there's three goals in a football match. Two of them are random. One of them goes to the best team. So... You definitely have to be aware of that randomness. And part of our job being modelers of footballer is to explain that randomness and the randomness of outcomes. But that one goal, that's very, very important. And there's lots of things you can do in order to improve your chance of your team being the team that's the best team and gets that one goal out of it. So you can't be too despondent if you if you lose a match. I say I normally say at least six matches to take away the randomness. But over six matches, you can start to see the pattern. Who's who's the better team? And we had Phil Giles, the director of football at Brentford, on one of our previous mm. episodes, and he studied maths at university. Yeah, and he is a big football fan. But he was saying when he started out in his career, there wasn't a job that existed where you could ally football and mathematics in that way. So I guess you didn't see that possibility, did you, early on? No. So I didn't. I didn't really see that possibility early on um and I suppose I maybe I wasn't looking at it in the same way as as he might have been looking at it from the start but it it wasn't like like that and I suppose actually it came the first coupling between maths and football came with Matthew Benham's work on um the gambling so he started to like look at well what are the factors which predict to the outcome of a football match how do you model the odds and so on and so that's where the first origins of mathematical football were and then I can see that that's definitely developed at Brentford and it's also developed at Brighton and Midtjylland of course where they've started to employ mathematicians to do that and um, yeah so now now there I mean now there's lots of jobs or lots of maybe there's not lots of jobs yet but there's lots of possibilities and I can see a big future in jobs for people who have done mathematics and want to combine it with football. I think that makes a big, big difference, doesn't it? If the owner has that belief in statistics ingrained in them, yeah, that seems to make a big impact at the club rather than a decision maker trying to get their head around it or to be convinced of it. Yeah, I think you do need to have some belief in that type of system. And I think that's maybe can be problematic for us who are trying to convince clubs to have this type of approach that not all owners have that background they might have yeah I, you know you'd have to be very rich to own a football club or to own a big football club so you, you probably had to do, done achieve something somewhere but that's not always with mathematical knowledge that you've done it when was your first formal involvement with football when did you first work with a team that Properly, I would say that was with Hammerby. So after I wrote the book um, in 2016 and it came out, I actually had a couple of Premier League clubs flew over to Uppsala and were like, uh, you know, uh, we want to know more about this. And it was really cool because I was training my son's team at that time. 
and I could take these um, these Premier League um, talent scouts and so on to go and watch his son's team son's team play. I think I can. I don't know if I should say that. Well, there was. A, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I think this story is all right to say because it's a long time ago. It, it happened. Lee Mooney, who was working for Manchester City, he came over and visited me, and I took him to um, uh, to one of my son's trainings. And he he actually came and he played with the boys and everything, and he was talking to them or whatever. And then he asked them, "What teams are you? Um, uh, what what um, uh, what teams do you support?" And they, you know, there was Chelsea, Liverpool, all came up, but City wasn't one of them. And he said, well, why doesn't anyone support City? And it was all just silence. And then my son puts up his hand and he says, because they're a bunch of sellouts. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was a bit embarrassed about that. <laughs> um, but so that was very nice. Uh, you know, we had these we had these visits. And but really, in order to do this properly, I think you have to be um, right, really involved with the team. And so what Hammerby did in Sweden, they're based in Stockholm, is that they gave me the chance to uh, all parts of the club. So the first thing they did is we sat down with the sporting director, the manager, the chairman, everyone in the room and the technical director. He said, you know, here's David, just allow him to go everywhere, do whatever he wants and, um, you know, be involved with the things. And the manager, Stefan Bilborn, he was very welcoming and he allowed me to go to the training. So I go along to the trainings and um, I would actually I collect the balls, you know, basically the balls are flying around. I bring the balls back in and I just sort of get a feeling and I could sound out different people. I talked to the assistant trainer very much, uh, quite a lot. And we started to get an idea about what might be interesting for them to know from mathematics. And I think you have to do it that way. I was there, I was worked 50% there for two years and found out how it actually works on the ground. And of course, by that time I was training my son's team. So I had some kind of experience as a football trainer, but then I really kind of picked up the language, the feeling, and they gave me access. After a bit, we were doing certain data analyses and then I'd show them to the players and the players would give me feedback and there would be a back and forth. And that's when I, I could really get going with this type of work. That's when I could say that I properly understood and felt like I was actually part of the football world. And what types of impact were you able to have at Hammerby? I think the thing with the, I'd say the biggest impact, the thing that I'm most proud of is that actually we changed some of our tactics based on the, on some suggestions I made. So um, Billborn wanted to play this attacking style of football he wanted to be up in the last third all the time putting the pressure on and he also wanted to win the ball back quickly whenever they lost it and he just liked attack actually and that was a complaint that many people had about it he wasn't so interested in defense but we came up with this idea together using a technique called pitch control where you can see how much area you're controlling we could actually we made this thing we called the cross and the cross is basically that when you've got five players up in the final third attacking, the other five players should form a cross behind them, which occupies as much space as possible. And that means, so it's important to have your, your left back and your right back come in and take their place in that cross. And, and this has become a very, not from us, but you know, you see this in, a, in, in various tactical things that you want to have this compact shape in the middle. You don't want your wingers or your your left or right backs out at too wide out and so we could actually plot that out he could show it to the players where it was and we could use tracking data to see how the players were positioned and then we'd go and we'd actually show these things to the players and say you know this is how you should be and that worked that worked very well and and we had an extremely extremely successful season where he could attack and we scored like three or four goals in matches while also keeping this this shape and winning the ball back. Will Spearman did a very good presentation, didn't he, about yeah. uh, pitch control. But did that originate with you then at, at Hammerby? Um, oh, no, I'm not going to take No, I mean, this is, I don't know, I don't know who invented pitch control that you would say like that. It's, it's a kind of, it's a kind of natural idea in some sense. Uh, I don't know, you can track down exactly who published this thing first. We didn't publish the first 
paper, but it's a natural idea that you want to see who's going to get to the ball first. If you drop down the ball randomly, who's going to get to the ball first? And when we did this, now I can say I can say this. So we definitely did, didn't do it first because we were using Javi Fernandez at Barcelona's code to do this because he'd written a program that calculated this and um, he gave us the code to, to calculate it. So we actually used his code to do it. But it was a kind of idea that came around that time. And yeah, definitely, as you mentioned, in the Friends of Tracking, Javi Fernandez had his model. Will Spearman had his model. We had our model. And um, we were trying to do that. I mean, the idea, the, the basic idea is in is in Socomatics as well. So we call we I, there I used something called a Voronoi diagram, which is the kind of first version, you would say, of pitch control. But I can't claim that I was the first person to use it there. It's quite interesting because a lot of these ideas are like they're mathematically natural. So if you know a bit of mathematics and you 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 suddenly think, oh, yeah, you can do do it like that. And then they get invented by reinvented by lots of different people mm. as they put them into practice. I remember a very interesting post you put out actually about expected threat. And you were mm. saying it is important, particularly with a female data scientist, to give credit where it's due. Yeah. It was Sarah Rudd, wasn't it? Who's yeah, no, there 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 is actually a clear thing. So again, I could, you know, I could say, oh yeah, she used a Markov chain to like, you know, assign this thing, but she actually had a uh, uh, yeah probably the most original intuition into this thing that she said well wait a minute like the ball is you, you can't predict what's going to happen you, you know you were saying this with randomness you can't predict what's going to happen more than about five to ten seconds into the future so if you just see how you predict how you progress the ball over those those time scales you can treat different passes as more or less independent than each other and so then she set up something called a Markov chain, which is a, a, a random process to describe a random process. And through that, she could assign values to things. And I went through that, her work. I mean, I've watched her talk several times. Now I think it's unfortunately disappeared from the internet. But um, she actually found, I think she did an analysis of Jordan Henderson in 2011 and showed that Jordan Henderson ranked very highly on this expected threat. And Liverpool did a very smart buy um, of him at that time because it was a, he only it was only a few matches but you could see how he was he was well ranked I think Liverpool had their own version of expected threat didn't they that Ian Graham spoken about they didn't call it that but it's exactly I think he calls version. it goals added or G plus or something yeah. like that yeah. um, he um, I heard him talk I, I know uh, yeah I've met Ian a few times and he uses precisely that when they're when they're deciding if they're going to buy players and thinking about you know how much is this player going to add during the season so you can actually sort of start to put a number on the expected threat added is like 5.4 goals per season what is the value to that um to us as a club and going back to Hammerby you mm. you still work with them to this day don't you seven years yeah so we we still I'm still working with them I'm not unfortunately you know I had to go back to my real job I'm not out on the pitch um every day or uh, yeah I, but I'm you know I, I go there a couple of times three times a year and we have lots of meetings a lot of it is done through WhatsApp I have a very good relationship um with the women's coach and so we have a lot of WhatsApp chats about um both about tactical things about their performance and about scouting players and through my company 12 we have a we have a collaboration and ongoing ongoing work with them I mean, I, I love I love the way it's every part of Hammerby. So I have relationships with the chairman, with the sporting director, the coaches of the different teams. There's a very good um, analyst just now for the male first team called Arbel, who I've learned a lot from. And then even I get to go on Hammerby Fan TV too. And, uh, you know, they, they they love the stats. So now I present a lot of statistical things on Hammerby, Hammerby Fan TV. And it's, um, yeah, that's that's been a brilliant relationship to have with that club. And does data science touch every part of the football operation? Because I find it's often recruitment mainly, isn't it? But, you know, you can also impact sports science, coaching, medicine. Yeah, no, I think... Um, it's that that's our plan. And that's what I thought would be the most interesting thing, you know, to actually. So when I was working every week with Hammerby, I was also writing the blog 
for the Hammerby webpage. And so I would do a statistical update. And I, I think, you know, sometimes they go into trouble with this, right? Because we're analyzing the performance of the team. And while I was there, luckily enough, we were doing pretty well. So everyone was positive about it. But then when to 2020, things weren't going so well. Then there was a few comments, you know, and then it's a bit difficult to handle. But my idea is that you should communicate openly at every level. So the board are seeing things, the players are seeing things. They're seeing slightly different things, but there's the same story. And then the fans are also seeing things and the sporting directory is seeing things. I mean, of course, we're not, no, we're not going to tell the fans like who we're scouting, but the performance of the players, who's, who's passing most to who, who's creating space, um, who's creating expected threat, those types of things, I think that you can communicate to basically to everybody. And did you then start working with other clubs after that initial? Uh, yeah, work? so in two different ways. Um, so my company, 12, we so basically we packaged up the stuff that I learned during those years and turned it into an approach to football, which we think that we can apply to different clubs, especially, as I've just said, with a philosophy of that every level of the club can be interested in. So we work with fan experience. Uh, probably the thing that's most fun and interesting to me is working with the performance. And then we also work with the scouting. So there's still the thing I enjoy the most is if you can think up metrics which allow you to improve your play on the pitch um, and allow you to visualize things for the players and for the coaching staff and provide information for them. So now we work with um, work with a big Premier League club. Um, we work with... Uh, a club in Spain and we're sort of starting a relationship with a club in Bundesliga as well now. So we're, we're working with them. And then we also work with some smaller clubs and we do kind of, you can think of it as like a consultancy plus then delivering a platform where they can analyze their, their own data. Mm. Um, and that's been an amazing journey as well. You know, it's, I think it's fascinating to see behind the scenes and most clubs, it seems that most clubs are pretty much organized in the same way. Hammerbees, you know, you might call it quite a small club, but basically up to the biggest clubs in the world, there's the same sort of feeling and the same sort of tensions going on um, as, as you see in Hammerby. And I know you're not able to name some of those clubs, but mm. then you are able to name other <laughs> big ones. You know, like I know Ajax and England. What what was your... Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, because that, that, so that's an important... There's a separation there. So there's... Uh, so when you have a sort of business relationship and they're paying you to help them out with things, then it's it's a bit more tricky to name them. But also I continue to do research projects and there um, there's two big collaborators currently. It was first, first, the first things I did was with, were together with Barcelona, but then Javi Fernandez, he moved on to, um, uh, to other things. But now I work with um, Miriam Brudsma in um, Ajax and her boss is Vossi de Borda. And we have several research projects together. We're looking exactly going back to where we started with the birds and the fish. What's been really good with the project I do with her is we're actually looking at the rules of motion of the players. So what cues do, does each player use when he, well, in this case, it's the man's team, when they do a run, uh, do they do they how do they open up space is one of the things but also just how do they coordinate and move as a group together and of course you know all of this is inspired by uh, the Cruyff Ajax way of thinking Cruyff has also made many quotes about the you know birds and uh, how you move together so we're doing that type of approach in order to understand the game um, then with uh, the English FA um, I have a PhD student there who is also, um, yeah, I'm thinking if I, well, I'll just, I'll just say, I mean, at the, at the English FA, I'm supervising a PhD student who is also a big part of their team in terms of delivering things during the World Cup and all of those types of things. But also we're doing a research project together, looking at so many different things, actually, looking at scanning behavior is one of them, for example. Mm. Um, looking also at expected threat models and how you should play in different positions in different in different types of situations 
that I think for me as a researcher, it's fascinating because you have a genuinely difficult mathematical computing uh, problem, plus you have something which is going to be applied, you know, something that England might use in the World Cup. And I think that's that makes it really fascinating. Yeah. So have the FA funded that PhD with a view yes, exactly. to implementing it? Yeah. Yeah. So the FA fund that. The FA are doing lots of things, I think, in the right direction um, towards bringing data analysis into everything that they do. I think they're, you know, I think I think that's going to be a bigger and we'll see more and more of that, actually. I, they have a big group of um, researchers or people working both with the men's team and the women's team doing these types of analyses and I've I've met and talked to quite a few of them and I'm very impressed by the level actually that's um, interesting yeah they're much they're everything is very integrated it's very down to earth the coaches I think at all you know at all levels the youth levels up to the first team both the men's and women they always take the input of the data scientists and the analysts and the analysts have a very high level um I think I've forgotten Emily's second name, but I think you talked yeah, to Angwin. Yeah, she yes, presented at our last webinar. Yeah, so Emily Angwin, she she I've had contact with her and looked a little bit about how she works and Mark Carter as well. They work extremely analytically, and I think that they're very appreciated by the coaches too. Mm. Is there quite a lot of data science work goes into uh talent development? Because I know that's a big area for the FA again. How, identifying um, developing talent through the pathways oh you'd have to ask yeah. them that's that's not to be honest i haven't really discussed that too much with right. them um i think that that particular side of things i haven't looked at i mean they definitely do um they do analysis of you know what's who's going to be successful what do you need to make a player successful i haven't personally done any any uh, investigation on that i think it's it's a, I can say now, I mean, this is from a totally personal perspective, uh, away from anything that the English FA have, have, have said or done. It's, I, I always go back to this because, you know, I've got a son who plays football and um, he's, he still plays at 17. But I always find it very depressing thinking about this because I know a lot of people think about it in the perspective of their children and how successful they might be and all of these types of things the biggest result i found out uh, I, I, this this is i don't know if i'm a terrible parent right but um my son when he was about 10 11 um he asked me what the chances were that he would be a professional football player and you know he's, he was he was a good player you know he's scoring loads of goals on the pitch everyone thought he was a good player there's no doubt about that but I worked it out and I sort of started thinking, you know, um, well, how many other good players are there in the league? How many other? And then how many counties are there in Sweden? And then how many Swedish players go on and play at the absolute top level? Mm. And I told him that the chance that he would be a professional football player playing in the Premier League was one in 5,000, even though he was good now. And he was like, he was devastated. <laughs> this is where I probably wasn't a good, okay, but, but he was devastated for five or 10 minutes. And then afterwards, I've always thought that that has helped him because while a lot of other kids, you know, they really have that dream and then it can fall apart in your teenage years. He's been able to take that with him and is always being realistic about, you know, that he's, he mm. still plays as he wants to win, still plays at the best he possibly can, but he's also realistic about his dreams. And so I always get, yeah, whenever you bring up these questions of talent identification, I think it's just such a difficult problem, you know, and it, uh, what you shouldn't do really is put too much stress on young people to believe that they will one day be in those types of positions i think actually with football and with most things um you've got to enjoy it that's your baseline mm. and then you yeah. gain something whatever really and yeah anything absolutely. else you can't guarantee you know? absolutely have you had any interesting findings in the iax research so far that you can share with us um let me think i it where i mean i can't yeah I, I think let me let me take um two of them 
one of um, yeah i'm not sure i'm, I'm going to tell you what the finding is i'm not you it's up to you if you think it's interesting or not yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's slightly technical right so there's there's a lot of hype about artificial intelligence and there's a paper by google where they predict the movements of players using a very advanced artificial intelligence uh, machine mm -hmm. and they've used this to solve chess so this same technique you can find the next move in chess and so we were kind of interested in this idea is like football like chess can the methods that they've been used to solving it also be used in football and the answer we found out is no a football player movement is reasonably simple so for the most part the most of the most of the time what football players are doing is just sort of following after the mean position the average position of their team and following the ball around and so we could actually find a very simple model which described the baseline movement of the players as just following the average position of their teammates and the position of the ball and that's why i'm sort of saying it's maybe not the most exciting result in the world yeah. but it's saying like here is the baseline and then we can start to build on variations of that so one thing that we've been thinking about at iax is if you do see a deviation from this pattern, what's that player doing? And that can be very useful for a tool for the team because uh, you can yes have the tracking data for the whole match. You can look to see if a, a player is deviating away regularly from this just following around pattern. And that's the player you want to watch. You can see, has have they been given a special role in the fact that they're doing that? And you can start to identify particular individuals who might have a particular role in the team. I think, I, yeah, I wanted to say this about Ajax because what's amazing there, and I think that this is a lot due to Vossi de Borde, who who's, runs the research group there, is that they're doing basic research and they do a lot on um, free kicks, on penalties, how you kick the ball, different things on training. So it's it's a very basic research-oriented thing. And I, I suppose the result I've just told you mm. is, is a kind of basic thing, but we actually want to build up over time a full model of football, which allows us to do the more complicated things. And what we found is that in some ways, analytics has skipped over some of those basics. And we're trying to kind of Put them into place what do you mean by that that analytics has skipped over well so you know I, I this thing i told you about the pitch control and the um the positioning of the five players that we did so that's really nice but it's not based on a kind of fundamental understanding of, of football so when we studied the fish and the birds what we did is we filmed them over lots and lots of times we built up models, we made a new experiment, we repeatedly kind of went through this cycle of trying to work out how the system of fish movement works. But when it comes to football, it's more like, oh, we'll try this exciting idea. This seems to work, you know, we might be able to use it in scouting. There isn't that kind of fundamentals. And I think that Ajax, and yeah, maybe, you know, English FA is more sort of, focus on things. Ajax is one of the few places where they're trying to do things from a kind of more fundamental level to understand the game very much from its basics. Luke Bourne said a similar thing, actually, mm. that clubs get ahead of themselves evenings yeah. and they're not answering the more simple questions. You know. Yeah, the thing is, it costs money, right? So, and, and the problem is, I mean, I always find this, this, this is something that, um, uh, yeah, one thing that I've told to several Premier League clubs or whatever. When I studied fish, I had a research budget of yeah, a million euros a year or something like that to do a group of researchers. And that's the kind of level that you want to start investing if you really want to build up a basic understanding of the game and move ahead and so of course there's because it's so new with analytics there's always going to be these small innovations you can do relatively cheaply but in the longer term you're actually going to need to invest in a proper research development 
And I don't think the willingness is there, despite the, you know, despite the vast quantities of money in clubs, some mm -hmm. of them in any case, I'm not sure the willingness is there always to do that. Is there a reluctance to build for the long term and not invest in things that are going to have a quick return? Yeah, and I, th I think, I mean, it is fundamentally a problem because I'm not sure if it's in the interest of the club to be the one who's doing that. Um, so I'm not sure why Ajax do it. But that really is an amazing, there's an amazing group of people there. I visited there in June and it, you have that sort of feeling there. They're quite, they're sitting quite closely together, but they have these amazing training facilities with rooms, with cameras filming how players shoot. Um, they sort of, um, they make them wear glasses also to see what they're looking at, for example. So how do you take a free kick? They put put glasses on so that they can actually track their eyeballs, what they're looking at when they take the free kick, when they look down to the shot. So it's it's having that kind of curiosity driven um, approach that you, you you need to have. Now I've forgotten the question, but uh, that was that's fascinating. No, about clubs <laughs> taking a short term approach. A yes, exactly. So that's yeah. that's what they saw at Ajax. Um, Barcelona was a bit like that also when um, when Xavi Fernandez was there I had that sort of university feeling you go in there mm. and they're part of the community um, and there's that kind of like curiosity driven data science mm. I think um, that's yeah that for me of course I mean I'm biased as a scientist I would love to see more of more of that type of thing is there a club doing that in England do you think I was just thinking while you were saying it. You know, <laughs> I think if there was, yeah, I don't know. I think, um, you know, you mentioned Liverpool and they're definitely leading the game in analytics. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, but they're not doing it in that way. I don't mm -hmm. think that that's that the, that's the way that they see it. They're, they're more into like, I, Ian Graham did a brilliant presentation about this and he actually, I don't know, he was, he was sort of, because a few weeks before he'd done his presentation, this was in Barcelona, I'd given a, I did a newspaper article about the stuff we were doing at Hammerby, the tactical analysis that I was talking about. And um, I said that if I could contribute 1% to Hammerby, I would be very happy. And he took this example up in a presentation that he did. You know, he says that Hammer, David Subtra Hammerby says he's happy if he contributes 1%. And then he said, yeah, and that's what I would expect someone who's sort of messing around on a football field to contribute. Where you're going to get your effect that's more than 1%, it's in scouting. You're going to, if you can find the best players for £20 million less, then that's where that's where your biggest contribution can be to the club mm -hmm. and so that's not to say I don't want to you know I don't want to say that he's cutting corners by seeing the scouting but he's just saying what is it I can do I've just come in I'm on my own to start with what is it I can contribute to that's going to give the most to Liverpool and he very clearly identified he's not going to mess around on the pitch like David is He's going to get in there and he's going to scout players and 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 uh, get them back. So I, you know, get the money that way. A big thing that I've seen that I think sounds quite straightforward. It's probably harder to do, but I think that successful or effective clubs do. I'll call it quantify the game model, which, mm. but they identify exactly how they want to play. They put numbers to that mm. visualizations, and then that can afford inform the head coach they have, the players they recruit in different positions. You know, Liverpool have talked about that with Andy yep. Robertson. He, he hadn't stood out, but they knew that his outputs were exactly what they wanted. Mm. Um, but there still seems to be a lot of clubs that don't do that. They don't quantify their style of play in that way. No, and and that um, that is also something that I actually, when I heard Ian Graham talk about this with scouting and the stuff I was doing at Hammerby, that was something that really struck me. And that's where we've ended up going with 12 football. We say we think about this thing to do with style of play, because where we could have an effect at Hammerby, there was a very the manager defined a style of play, but the sporting director also had that. So we have a consistent sort of idea of how we want to play the play the game. We want to play possession based football. We want to play attacking football. 
thinking not only because we want to entertain, we have incredible fans at Hammerby, we want to entertain the fans, but also we're never going to be the richest club in the world. So we want to play football, which develops the players. And so we put all of that together. As we said, we communicate at different levels and then we develop a model around that. And so then our analytics are also based around that model. And that's also what we're doing now when we work with other clubs is we're thinking about what's the style of the manager, um, what style of football do the, the team want to play? And then you start with the style of play. The next thing is the KPIs, the metrics that you want to measure about that. And so there we, we try and get clubs or whoever we're talking to, to write down five or six things that are really important. They write them down in words and then we turn that into a number and then we make it into visualization. So that's become the way that we've worked. And it's really tries to capture exactly what you're saying, that you should have an identity. You have a very clear identity. You can turn that identity into a paragraph description of what your identity is. And then those words are turned into numbers and the numbers are turned into visualization. And everybody in the club, you know, this is a dream. It doesn't always happen, but everybody should be building into that. The players should know what that is. The, um, the board should know what that is. And the fans should know what that is. And you can, I think, put that together with analytics. I think the successful clubs and the efficient clubs like Brighton, they do exactly that, don't they? So yeah. Graham Potter left. Yeah. And they've already identified Deserby, who's someone who could deliver what they wanted, who could work with the players they've got. And he's come in very seamlessly. Whereas you take an Everton, I think, that mm. head coaches are very, very different that they've had. So they have a big churn yeah. of players. They don't have a good transition, you know, and it's disastrous, really. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I think that's, that's precisely right, that you've got to have that well-defined thing and I think that there is also more to I mean I always think that there is an important thing with with Brentford for example is that they have survived well in the Premier League but they didn't even take it for granted that that was what was going to happen I, I think you know going back to Matthew Benham as well is a bit of a hero of mine I suppose is like he was quite clear there as well that yeah this could be oh we've gone up this year that means we're now in the group of clubs that can be going up and down for a bit and so they're planning in the long term for that. How are you going to have, and as you're saying, with Everton, sack your manager and try to get a manager that will help you survive in the Premier League now. But then you've got that manager when you go back down. So Brentford are kind of, I don't know, maybe they believe now that they're actually stabilised in the Premier League. But for a while, they were working in that type of way that we have a manager who could actually also work quite well in the championship to bring us back up. Mm -hmm. And I could think about that, you know, with Potter, I know him, of course, from Östersund uh, when he was in Sweden. He's, yeah. you know, he's a fellow Brit going to Sweden, and um, I think you know he's somebody who could work in the Championship. And that's that's, yeah, of course, now he's at Chelsea, and good luck to him. But that is an important thing uh, to think about with uh, the Potter um, uh, appointment, because I think Brentford have had all of their head coaches for a decent period of time under Matthew Benham. They don't make knee-jerk mm. uh, reactions, do they? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing up Brighton and, and uh, <laughs> Brighton and yeah, yeah, Brentford, yeah. aren't I? You know, yeah. you know that. You're being polite about it. <laughs> but the, the point is that there's two of them. You know, there's Matthew Benham and the, there's the guy who owns uh, Tony Bloom, isn't there? Yeah, isn't Danny there? Bloom. And uh, in a way, I kind of th I think of them in my head in the same. Yeah, way yeah. it's the same it's the same philosophy and yeah. i'm sure when they were thinking about um yeah i mean i'm sure that the thinking was going in the same direction yeah so i told you I'm, I'm not very good at names and uh that part of the football but no uh... i hadn't noticed actually no i hadn't noticed that. <laughs> i was going to finish off actually david just by uh looking at the future mm. of data science in football so first of all has tracking data made a massive change do you think with what clubs can do it has, but I don't think it's been exploited yet. I mm. think, um, you know, the stuff that we did at Hammerby is still, uh, yeah, I don't know if I, yeah, I, don't, I think I can say this, that is, you know, it's still a lot more advanced than is what be, is being done at some very big clubs. There's still so much that they can use this tracking data for. One issue is that the tracking data isn't available 
for other leagues. So when a big club in the Premier League, for example, is looking to scout players in other leagues, they don't have tracking data for the, for all those other leagues. That's why they rely better on a, more on event data. But there's just so much scope there, I think. And I don't think that we've even sort of, yeah, we've even seen a start for that. Um, I think that there's going to be much, much more to come there. It's, it, it's going to allow people, and just to take some examples of, yeah. of what we can do and with tracking data, um, I often talk about this. We had this example from a sporting director um, who claimed to me that you couldn't measure attitude with analytics. And we came up with this idea of off the ball runs, right? Because if you're running off the ball, then in a sense, that's showing very good attitude. And if throughout the match, you keep making these off ball runs, and we made a metric which measured off ball runs, and we could look to see how uh, during a match does do players continue to make off ball runs. And we found that Firmino was topping this metric. And you think like Firmino, big part of the Liverpool team, but not always the player scoring the goals. And you could actually see that in the numbers. And we ended up calling that we have we have a Van Dyke metric as well and a Firmino metric. So we make up these these metrics which measure a quality of particular players. And in a sense, that was the attitude, you know, so there's the measuring the attitude of the player is measuring something to do, not what they do with the ball necessarily, but how they continue um, continue doing these runs throughout. You can also think about it tracking back. So now you've got the tracking data on, on all of the players. You can see if players, how fast they're running back when there's a defensive mistake. We made another one, another of this attitude things, because it's often brought up. And I did a I did a thing with Gary Neville in the summer. And Gary Neville said, oh, well, what you can't measure is you can't measure what you can't measure the look on their faces when they go a goal down. And I was, yeah, OK, you can't measure the look on their faces when they go a goal down. That's probably true. But what you can do is you can measure how they play after they've gone a goal down. So we made something with this one we call the Gary Neville metric. <laughs> where, where it's like when it when a team goes a goal down how does a does a player perform better or worse than um than uh, yeah before yeah before they went to goal down and so okay, on and, yeah um we could see that certain players would really lift their game after they went to went to goal down and other players um wouldn't lift their game as much what was that thing you did with him when you say a thing with Gary Neville? Yeah, I did a, uh, um, I did an internal ITV thing. So it was, a, it was I don't know, edu, edutainment for ITV. Oh, um, okay. They have a, they wanted to learn about football analytics. And uh, I think they got Gary Neville and then they thought, oh, well, who else will we get? And, uh, and so they they um I was in Manchester is really nice actually he's a really lovely guy yeah yeah I yeah. mean of course you know everyone knows he's lovely from the tv but he was very it was the morning that Boris Johnson got sacked so maybe he was just in a good mood or <laughs> 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 Boris Johnson resigned so he uh yeah um yeah. No, he's very nice and talking about the tracking data again do you think there's much scope for actually using it live? Because that doesn't seem to happen much from what I can gather when you yeah. have the tablet on the bench. I don't, I don't really believe so much in using these things live. I think that mm. they're, I don't think we're there. Okay. So we're, we're not using track. So in the future, we might be able to do it, but I'm not quite sure what the, um, you know, the, the idea might be that you'd find some sort of hole in the defense or you'd spot yeah. some kind of exploitable thing. Uh, I always believe, and several coaches have told me this, that, I mean, you you do it, you do your work during the week, right? You set up the play. The players can, they can follow instructions to some degree, but it's during the week that you do your work. So you would do a tracking data analysis of your opposition. You try and find those spaces, how they'll play against you. And you already have that picture of how they're working. And you need to establish that a week in advance. Then during the week preparing for that game, you do your training exercises based on those spaces you might try and identify and, and how you could play against them in order to, to create more. You do that then. And then when the players come out, they're already playing in that way. There's going to be allowed to you to exploit the opposition. 
I'm not sure. You know, I, everything, every comment I hear on television goes against me on this one. But I don't think that you can do that big tactical manipulations during the match to actually change things a lot. It's before you start that you have to you have to get everything right. Because you hear people saying that maybe you could even have a sort of computer manager in future that yeah, makes and that, decisions based on data. I mean, that that's the thing that I think is, uh, yeah, that's the AI bullshit part of it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, and as I was talking about the IAX thing, because when Google DeepMind said they were going to start working on um, on football and find out that type of thing, that's when we thought, you know, we really need to take this back to the basics and work out what the basic structure of football is. I don't think that you can have a computerized manager of football. It's never going to be that way. And it's, I think it's really important to, to stress the role because, of course, yeah, it's very exciting with data science and how it's used. And, of course, when we're working with 12, we say, you know, you need to have this in your club and clubs definitely need to have it. But it's in the same way as you need to have a physio in your club and you need to have the, the doctor and you need to have the person with a kit right make sure everything's that you know, the kit has come to the match you need this support around you and one of those people you need and maybe a group of them you need to have the data scientist with you is not that the data scientist is going to write an artificial intelligence that's replacing the manager the data scientist is one part of that important team that's built up around the players. I think it's easy to forget. I often say this as well, that it's easy to forget that in the end, it's 11 players who come out on the pitch plus a few substitutes. That's them who decide what goes on and what, you know, what the outcome is. And it's those people you work with and you support and pretty much everything else doesn't really matter, actually. It's getting those those people out on the pitch and, and performing at the top level. Um, my timeline at the moment is full of uh, stuff about chat GPT as we're talking yeah. about AI. <laughs> has, that, has that got a role to play in football, do you think? Oh, it, not in the sort of thing we're talking about today. But, you know, I said that we're we're also thinking about fan experience. And I can tell you, we we wrote a chat. We wrote a chatbot, a football chatbot, a few years ago. I had some students do a project on it, and then we looked at it a little bit by twelve at twelve. And I think that will be a future. So, so like a few scenarios, I can tell you this. So, imagine you've got like a chat with your mates on WhatsApp, and what you do is you invite this chatbot in, and so whenever you come out with a fact on your your chat or you say something it can kind of like enrich the discussion a little bit and sort of, you know, make a comment about this happened in this year and, and so on. And those types of applications, I think they're going to be more and more common. And so inside your WhatsApp chat, you'll have that. And you, you can, yeah, you can tell it to shut up if you don't want to hear from it anymore, but those types of things will happen. I think it will affect the game a little bit less, but it will definitely affect the, the fan experience. Okay. And a lot of companies and products are bringing AI into their descriptions. Yeah. You know, for example, injury prevention is a big one. Products that use that to predict. Yeah, I mean, I, get injured. of course you can do, I, I have some injury prevention in particular is one of the ones that can annoy me most. <laughs> I, when I, I mean, one of the things I got to experience at Hammerby, of course, is because because I was in that position at the club. So every time there was some one of these companies that came in and wanted to sell Hammerby something, just send them over to David and I had to deal with them and look at their product. And I think most often, maybe clubs don't have the competency to actually see what their, their products do. And the injury prevention one in particular really annoyed me because they were taking, they were said that they could take the data from R22 players just them, no one else's data, which quite rightly they can't use because it's all private data. And they could predict whether the player was going to get injured based on some questionnaires they'd filled in and various things. And a lot of it just isn't true. You can't make those types of predictions on such a small sample size. And you can't outperform the physio either. You know, if you have that, again, this AI versus human contact those types of things the the inputs of the experts are so important in those situations of course it's important to measure training load and all of these types of things 
but the idea you can make predictions you have to be really careful about that and I think it's important whatever you know also talking to someone like me when I'm talking about expected threat or pitch control or whatever it's very important to be critical about what you can and you can't do with those methods um, and of course I think that I do it perfectly and, and 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 lots of other people do it very well as well. I'm not saying that we are the only people who do it well, but it's also very important to be critical. And a lot of that criticism just starts with common sense. You know, does it sound likely that a piece of software can predict if Kevin De Bruyne is going to be injured next week? No, it doesn't sound particularly likely. He might get injured. It's football, but it, it's difficult to predict. And so, yeah, that, that common sense leads you to the conclusion that your AI product probably isn't going to do that. I suppose it's easy to get seduced, isn't it? Maybe by a mm. lack of understanding. Yeah. AI, and maybe one in quick answers again. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know. I've, I'm... This can be slightly cool. I mean, one brilliant thing about being me, I'm in the academic world and I'm not really part of the industry so much. And I could sort of be reasonably honest about this. There is so many problems inside the world of football with this lot of money floating around, a lot of sort of corporate entertainment with people knowing people who are inside the club and buddies giving each other's jobs and, and doing things like that. And so there isn't always a lot of control over getting hold of the best person to do a particular job, especially when it's an area like artificial intelligence where nobody really knows so much about it. And so you, you get in something that sounds convincing. Two years later, you find, well, no, that didn't really work out, did it? And so I think there is a little bit of problem with that in football. If it's worse than other industries, I'm not sure, but I think maybe it is a little bit worse. Something that you've tweeted about that you say has had a big impact, uh, Streamlit, which I don't yeah. know anything about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's what made me think with ChatGPT3. So, well, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about Streamlit. I don't know, yeah, you seem yeah. to let me talk about these boring, geeky things. But no, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> so Streamlit, so the... The first revolution, I suppose, is so there's this language called Python, which we all use. And that's what we did on the expected goals course. We programmed up things in Python. Now, what Streamlit allows you to do is not just output figures in Python. It allows you to build a web app. So if you're interested in, for example, shot maps of a particular of players in the Premier League, first, I write my code in Python, which generates shot maps. Then I turn it into this Streamlit app. And I can just share it online so you can play around and look at different players, look at their expected goal values in different situations and really start to get insight. So instead of de delivering um, a report or even an interactive web page, you kind of have this whole interactive program that you can deliver to the coaching staff and you can put that together. And that's what we, we've been doing at 12 Football. You can put that together in a day or even half an hour, you can put together something which answers the question. So if you think about this cycle of like, you know, we're our style of play, the particular thing we're interested in, generating a number and a visualization, that whole cycle using Streamlit as your tool and Python as your programming language can be completed in a day and that insight can be delivered extremely quickly. And that was I was interested in the contrast there with chat GPT three, for example. Yeah, that's just waffling on a lot of stuff that doesn't actually make any sense. This is where an expert puts it to use and can actually start to answer questions really, really quickly. Okay. And I, I think that that's whether it will be Streamlit, which is the tool which takes off in that. Um, I can say that in inside what we've done is really rapidly developed it. You know, so if you think about one of these big statistical platforms, I won't name the names of the companies which have them. They provide these statistical platforms and it takes them some time to develop those. They're not customized. So they're, there's, everyone's got the same one. And clubs want to have their own specialized thing, right? So now when you can use Streamlit, it's just, -da 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 -da. here's your specialized dashboard and this is for you. This has the things that's important for you and we can generate it very quickly. Right. Okay. And that then does allow you to make it bespoke for your club. Which exactly. Is the thing, isn't it? Yeah. So that's, yeah, to, that's the short version of my answer there. <laughs> Instead of having one platform, every, all the clubs having one platform that they've paid a subscription to, 
we can create a personalized platform for them, um, which tells them what they want to know, doesn't have the information they don't want to know, and which can be updated and new things can be put into it um, very quickly. Is that a big part of what you're doing for the Bundesliga, La Liga and Premier League club? That is a big part. And everybody, everyone wants things delivered in different ways, right? So some people want delivered, they want, some people want a PDF. So you just get a document emailed to everybody um, immediately. That like, for example, um, we do one so that the manager can see directly after the match um, what the performance was. So within five minutes of the match, there's a whole PDF explaining how things work. Some some want it for the for the fans. So um, we're working on a fan entertainment app, um, and also, but also for the scouts. So the information that uh, the fans need again and the scouts need isn't so different. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah. So so you every every delivery is different. And that's why you have to be flexible in this way, because they want they want their information delivered in a different way. Mm. And I think that's the revolution. So instead of instead of saying that, yeah, you have to look at this platform and you have to cut and paste and put these things out, you just say to yeah, 12 or a company like ours, this is what's important for our communication at this level. And then we can create something which which um, allows that. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you, David. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.